we're all familiar with the popular culture version of heaven. And even, even for many believers, we sort of have this image of an ethereal cloud paradise, maybe with golden streets and jeweled architecture. Imagery stems partially from a misinterpretation of Revelation 21 and 22, but also, um, and, and from some Old Testament passages, but, but also from Gnosticism and Platonism. But this idea of an otherworldly paradise in the clouds to which we escape just isn't there. Like there's there's talk, you know, lots of mentions of heaven, but that's not an otherworldly cloud paradise we go to when we die. Everyone, this is what your pastor didn't tell you. Today I am on with Dr. Andrea Robinson. We're gonna be talking about heaven. What is it? What are some popular misconceptions? And what does it mean for us today? How are you doing today, Dr. Robinson? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me back. Awesome. It's it's always a pleasure. Yeah, just give us a little bit about your background. Most people already know who you are just from past interviews on Ezekiel and Revelation, but go ahead and give us just a general background. Sure. So um my bachelor's is actually in chemical engineering, so I'm very interested in uh, science and the interface of faith and science. Uh, so a lot of my writing um, has to do with uh, God's creation and, and how, how do we as believers interact with God's creation and what will happen to God's creation. And so we'll, we'll get into a little bit of that today, but uh, my master's and PhD are in biblical interpretation and uh, I wrote my dissertation on Revelation. Never thought I would end up doing that, but uh, Revelation 21, 22, the temple, uh, the, the temple that um, comes down from heaven, which we will definitely talk about today, um, but on how John uses Ezekiel's temple vision from the Old Testament uh, to present um, really how he, he kind of tells us how we can look at these Old Testament prophetic texts to see what God is bringing forth in the future. You know, what, what God is doing through those Old Testament visions. Yes, there, there is, uh, there's a meaning for that people at that time, but there's also a deeper meaning behind those visions that, that God has for all of us for all time. And, and we'll definitely get into that today, but I've uh, also written, um, several devotional books, um, Devotionals Inspired by God's Creation. The series is called Rooted and Flourishing. So uh, the summer volume of that just came out. Uh, I'm actually working on a book on John 14, which again, we'll talk about a good bit today. And um, I'm passionate about this topic and I'm excited to chat. Awesome. Yeah. So that that paper, you also wrote a paper on John yes. 14 yes. with the, the mansions and um so-called mansions, at least. Yeah, and there, there's stuff. there's a link to that. Um, it's published in the Journal of Baptist Theology and Ministry, um, and there's a link to that on my website if, if anybody would like to read that article. It's it's uh, pretty dense. It's got some Greek mm -hmm. and Hebrew in there, but but you can you can wade through it uh, even if you don't understand the Hebrew and the Greek. And hopefully today will be a good uh, intro on that topic, at least. For sure, for sure. So, what would you say are the most popular descriptions of heaven? Yeah, so we're all familiar with the popular culture version of heaven. And even, even for many believers, we sort of have this image of an ethereal cloud paradise, maybe with golden streets and jeweled architecture. And there's usually some beautiful angels flying around. And we sort of lay around and play harps and sing or, or maybe just, mm. you know, take naps on our fluffy clouds. And this imagery is is often frequently reinforced in paintings, in movies, um, and the imagery stems partially from a misinterpretation of Revelation 21 and 22, but also, um, and, and from some Old Testament passages, but, but also from Gnosticism and Platonism. And for, hmm. for anyone who, who may not be familiar, I'll explain that a little bit, um, Plato, a student and disciple of Socrates, who lived in the 4th century BC, so basically going into the intertestamental period, um, hmm. his teachings became a huge part of Greco-Roman thinking and philosophy and influenced even some of the early church fathers through the first several centuries CE, like uh, hmm. th the New Testament period, sort of, and, and a few um, years after that. So one of the major tenets of Platonism is that matter, the physical realm, is a substandard and shadowy version of 
of true transcendent reality. And so the realm of consciousness and spirit is of much, much greater value than our hmm. corporeal physical reality. Now, Gnosticism was a direct offshoot of Platonism, um, and, and Gnosticism, not, not the same thing as agnosticism, very different. Um, Gnosticism was influenced by Platonism, and it coalesced again around the, the same time as the New Testament, the time that the early church was defining its own identity. And one of the core tenets of Gnosticism is that material creation is evil. And salvation, according to Gnosticism, would occur when the divine spark within us is awakened and we grow more holy as we grow in knowledge and transcendent realities, um, not necessarily through the eradication of sin, as you and I as um, Christ followers, as believers, would believe. Now, mm -hmm. depending on the time period and the particular sect of Gnosticism, there's like a series of celestial heavens and you reach higher heavens as you become more enlightened. Now, this is where we get to the topic at hand. As the early church was forming, some of these ideas began to creep into Christian thinking and sort of lodged in our collective belief system, even though Gnosticism officially has been considered a heresy for really all of church history. But, but some of those um, Platonic and Gnostic ideas sort of lodged in our collective thinking. Um, and then we, um, we sort of lost what the Bible is actually teaching us uh, about heaven. Hmm. That's really, really fascinating. I, I hear about like Satan and uh, hell being influenced, but I don't ever hear about the heaven hmm. and how our, uh, you know, church history has our shaped our views on that. And that's really interesting that we'll, I'm interested to hear what you think about all that. So, um, yeah, so I guess, we can do two things. We can talk about what, how you see heaven. Like, what do you think is the biblical definition of heaven? Or, or should we just go through the verses first? What would you, what, you, what is best for you? Uh, no, let's definitely talk about the biblical definition because that sets the foundation for um, when we go into the passages specifically. Okay. All right, go for it. Okay, so in a nutshell, <laughs> the biblical authors really aren't that interested in the concept of heaven. Like we're really interested in it. We want to know all about it, but they're just mm -hmm. not that interested in what happens in the afterlife when we die. They're much more concerned with how we live right now than what happens when we die. So let me give you some, hmm. some specifics. All right. The term heaven is used approximately 400 times in the old Testament and it's Shemaim. In the new Testament, 250 or so times and it's Uranus. Over 75% of the time, the word just refers to the sky, just what's up there. And hmm. according to their conception of the universe, that's the place where the gods live. Now, we know that we, we presume that God doesn't actually live in the sky uh, or any other god, you know, doesn't actually live in the sky. But, but that was sort of the framework for their thinking. So that's kind of how it got to be associated with God right now. Along those lines, uh, it's sometimes used as a synonym for God. Sometimes it's used to refer to something being up there or being up high. Uh, and then there's one uh, really odd instance where Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven. This is a very contested and confusing verse that <laughs> we're just not sure what he's going for. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk just a little bit more about that in a second. But uh, we also have frequent references to the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. and But the kingdom of heaven is not somewhere we go when we die. The kingdom of heaven is God's people, God's people of all time, those of us who are alive and those who've passed away and are waiting on the resurrection. So the kingdom mm -hmm. of heaven is God's people. Uh, and now... There are three instances where the biblical authors refer to paradise, paradisos, and that's a different word altogether than heaven, but these passages are often cited in reference to heaven, so, so I'll um, give you all three. 2 Corinthians 12, 4, which is the one I just mentioned, uh, where Paul talks about the third heaven, and basically, basically in this verse, if you read the context, we, we know that... Um, Understanding the context of scripture uh, or the context of any particular passage uh, helps us interpret it 
more faithfully. We don't cherry pick things out and create meaning or doctrine based on that, right? So Paul's point in this passage, um, I'll, I'll read you just a little clip of it so that everybody's on the same page. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or out of the body, I don't know. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know. <laughs> so even Paul's saying there's a lot of stuff he doesn't know. He was caught up into paradise. And he's talking about himself here. He's talking about being caught up into the presence of God. Uh, and he says, on behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, even except, excuse me, except in regard to my weaknesses. For I do, if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Now, that's a, if you're feeling a little like, what? Yeah, uh, everybody feels that way when we read this. Um, but if you slow down and look at it, Paul's not teaching about heaven. He's offering up a rebuttal to some people who are claiming to be super spiritual. They're boasting about their uber spiritual experiences. And, and so what he's doing here is um, teaching us not to boast about um, our, our great spirituality. Um, that's his point. His point is not mm. to teach us what happens when we die. He's not even talking about something that happens when we die or something in the afterlife. He's talking about a spiritual experience he had. Now, uh, obviously we don't have time to unpack the whole thing, but basically paradise here is where God is. That's the point. Paradise, if we're looking for meanings of words, paradise is where God is. And the next two instances, which are much more clear, confirm that. Luke 23, 43, this Jesus on the cross speaking to the criminal. We're all familiar with this verse. Today, you should be with me in paradise. And then Revelation 2, 7, um, John says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So paradise is where God is. So basically... Heaven is the sky. It's not necessarily where we go when we die. Mm -hmm. uh, and paradise is being on, in God's presence, which we presume we will be uh, in his presence when we die. We um, have that great, great hope and expectation. Um, but this idea of an otherworldly paradise in the clouds to which we escape just isn't there. Like there's, there's talk, you know, lots of mentions of heaven, but that's not an otherworldly cloud paradise we go to when we die. Um, and again, as I said, the arc of the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation is about restoring our relationship with God to be in his presence again and restoring the creation that was um, damaged in the fall. Hmm. So, yeah, this idea that we have of heaven, it, it really just isn't there. Interesting. Okay, so... Um... Yeah, maybe you can give a couple or a few examples of what you mean by the, the biblical theme or narrative describes, you know, restoration on earth compared to just some, you know, ethereal heaven in the clouds. Yeah, so so let's go to Revelation first because that's where um, a lot of the problem has stemmed from. And Okay. <laughs> let me first just talk about Revelation in general and how we interpret Revelation faithfully and properly. Okay. Um, so uh, a lot of our ideas come from Revelation 21, 22 of heaven, where it's describing golden streets and jeweled architecture and pearly gates, etc. Um, and I, I unpack all of those images, images in excruciating detail in my, in my book, Temple of Presence, if you really want to um, dig into all that imagery. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line is that these are symbols that point to greater realities. And uh, in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Revelation, John tells us that this, is his, this book, this vision, is a symbolic vision. And on top of that, there's virtually 100% consensus that this is apocalyptic literature, right? And one of the primary tenets of apocalyptic literature is that we interpret it symbolically. It's presenting mm -hmm. symbolic images to um, teach us truths about greater realities in the cosmos. Now, as, hmm. as evangelical believers, we've, we've had it sort of hammered into us that the, the way to interpret the Bible faithfully is to interpret it literally. Hmm. And in general, that's a pretty solid principle. But there are certain types of biblical literature that are clearly not, to be, not intended to be interpreted literally. 
when we read the Psalms, I use this example all the time. I, I probably use uh, the same example when we talked about Revelation specifically. Um, when we read the Psalms, we understand it's poetry, and poetry is not intended to be interpreted literally. When David says that his bones are drying up and his bones are crushed, we understand that he's expressing deep emotional distress, maybe even such emotional distress that, that he's become physically ill. If we, we, if we think, oh, well, he just has a broken arm or something, you know, we're totally missing the point. And that, that happens with revelation, right? We, we go in and, and we're, we're so, um, accustomed and trained to, to interpreting literally that we miss the whole point because we're, oh, golden streets, uh, oh, you know, pearly gates. And, and we think it's going to be really pretty maybe like a lavish mansion, but, but we've missed the whole point that, that when we walk on golden street, golden streets, we're walking on holy ground, that when we have these jeweled walls, what John is actually telling us is that we're in perfect safety, that we're perfectly in God's presence. And so there's all these deep layers of meaning that when we just look at, you know, the lavish um, architecture, we're actually missing what John's trying to communicate. Um, now, in specifically in regard to uh, Revelation 21, 22, pretty much everybody agrees that this is the eternal state, right? But some interpret it more literally and others more figuratively. So as I said, we have um, the bejeweled architecture as if, you know, heaven is really, really fancy. Um, and it may be, but, but I think it's going to be even better than gold and jewels. And uh, I think John is using this imagery to, uh, he's using the best things that he can think of, the best things that he's seen or experienced or heard of to, to, to represent realities that are even better, right? He's using the best, most valuable things the world has to offer to help us understand that, that what it's going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth, that what it's going to be like is going to be so amazing. We can't even imagine it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. sure. Right. So, um, so the literal interpretation, I think, and, and I would say it's more of a spectrum, right? It's not like somebody's strictly literal or strictly figurative. There's a whole yeah. spectrum of, of really how people understand these visions. But I do want to make um, one important point is that it's not about going up and getting away from creation. It's about God restoring the perfect creation. Uh, as I said, that was intended in Genesis 1. And we do hmm. indeed see in Revelation 21, 2 and 10, the city comes down. We don't go up. The new heaven and earth comes down and we inhabit the new heavens and earth. It is a physical creation. It's a corporeal uh, creation. We, in our new redeemed bodies, will live upon. And this city that's presented, it's not presented as like, it's not like the capital city of heaven or, or just, you know, the place where God lives, that we could come visit him when we're in creation. It's all of creation, right? Revelation 21, 22, this beautiful vision is John is showing us what the entirety of the new creation is going to be like. God's presence is going to be everywhere in it. Uh, we have full access to his presence for all time. And that's what that's what heaven is, is, is access to God's presence in the redeemed heaven and earth. And, and just as a side note, you know, um, when we die before Christ comes back, I think that we do go into the presence of God. And I think probably we will return with Jesus um, and dwell on the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes back. So I, I do think there's probably that intermediate state where we are in God's presence. As, as Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Mm -hmm. um, so heaven is just wherever God is. When, um, well, I'll, I'll get there in a minute. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Okay, so uh, so just, just so we're on the same page here. So Jesus says to the guy, uh, you'll, you'll be in paradise. That's also what Paul was referring to when he means the third heaven. And that is somewhere where we die. That's just wherever God is. Um, we don't really, do we have much details other than that? 
No, Bible really just, so, so this is the way I look at it. And I think uh, the Bible Project explains this really well. N.T. Wright explains this really well. So there's God's space and there's our space. In Eden, mm-hmm. we were perfectly dwelling with God in his space, his realm, wherever, you know, his presence is. But the fall, we were separated from him. And, and because of sin, we can no longer, I'm trying to line my hands up with the camera, we can no longer coexist in the same space. But when the new heavens and earth comes down, when Jesus comes back, when we're fully redeemed and restored, that's when um, the new creation can and, and the people that live in it can fully dwell in God's presence again. So there's our space, God's space. Right now we're separated, but we will be once again reunited. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Okay. And I, yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. I mean, specifically verse 2 of 21, 20, uh, Revelation 21 verse 2 specifically mm-hmm. says, I saw the holy city of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. So, I mean, whatever this city is obviously isn't in heaven anymore. Right. Yeah, it's coming down. Well, and really probably it's, it's you know, in the vision he's seeing, uh, because remember they're, they're conceiving that the gods are in the sky, right? So God's uh-huh. up there. That's where God lives. That's where his space is. And John you know, the actual physics of it, I have no idea, but this is how they're perceiving it. And so it comes down and becomes reunited with, with our space, Mm. um, the new heavens and the new earth. And it's not, Mm. you know, it's, it's not just a spiritual realm. We, we have resurrected bodies on a redeemed earth. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay. All right. Did you have anything else you wanted to add for revelation? Um, no, we may touch on it a little bit here and there, but all right. So let's go with, um, do Isaiah? yeah, did, we can do it. Yeah. Let's go ahead and do Isaiah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, okay. So John extensively, actually, actually I'll touch on Isaiah and Ezekiel. Um, John extensively uses old Testament passages. Really it's, it's, it's the, probably the most intertextual book in all of scripture because John mm. references just about every book in the Bible, but, <laughs> but relies heavily upon Old Testament prophets. And when and, you mean John, you mean Revelation, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. John is in the author of Revelation. Um, okay. So he's using these messages that the prophets gave to the people of Judah and the people of Israel. He's using these visions of restoration and redemption to talk about a more full restoration and redemption that's coming in the future. And so so one that, that again, that I talked about extensively in my dissertation, we talked about in a separate interview, is Ezekiel 40 through 48. It's a temple vision. Mm-hmm. And this type of, of vision operates on two levels. It's taking imagery that um, the people of that time, the, the original Judeans, the Israelites, you know, what, whatever the context may be, um, they're being promised a glorious future in which they're restored to God's presence in their promised land. Um, but, but the imagery is robust enough that it contains even more than that, right? He, he's ca- kind of like the imagery of the, uh, you know, the beautiful, fantastical imagery is, is intended to convey something even better than we can imagine, right? I think they understood national resurrection uh, and, and resurrection for their people, but, there's, but those messages also contain resurrection for all of creation, for all of people, um, an eschatological future in which they would dwell more fully. Now, how much of that the original hearers would have understood, I can't tell you. There's, there's a huge, it's a huge hermeneutical debate, you know, uh, of, you know, how much the original readers would, would understand of the prophetic message, um, or, or, or is there even more to it? Was it just to them and there's no more even to it? But I believe that these prophetic messages operate on two levels, one for that people at that time, but also a deeper message that's for all of us for all time. And I believe that's what John is doing. He's taken these Old Testament prophetic messages um, to the people of Israel, the people of Judah, but, but he's showing us how they're fulfilled in Christ mm-hmm. and fulfilled by bringing us back in all people into the presence of God and that there's even better things in store than just getting back to a certain plot of land or getting the temple rebuilt. There, there's even better things in store. Mm. And so, so that's uh, kind of ha- how, what I was doing with Ezekiel 40 through, 40 through 48 is showing that it's not just about a temple. John is mm. taking this imagery and showing us it's about the presence of God. It's about getting God's people back into his presence. And so we go from there An- another passage that, is often referenced um, 
in regard to heaven and, and sort of a, a little bit of a contentious passage, um, Isaiah 65, starting in verse 16, I'll read, I'll read just a few verses. I won't read the whole section. Um, Isaiah says, behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former, th former things will not be remembered or come to mind. John almost verbatim uses those lines. Um, but be glad and rejoice forever in which I in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. There will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Again, John takes that almost verbatim. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives only a few days or an old person who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100 and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. And then Skipping down a couple, the famous line, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox and the dust will be the serpent's food. There will be, they will do no evil or harm on my holy mountain. So I want to jump back to the verse where it says, no longer will there be an infant who lives only a few days or an old person who does not live out his days. Um, the one who does not reach the age of a hundred will be thought accursed. Now, just, just as it, it sounds like if, if this verse is about heaven, it sounds like there's death in heaven, right? That right. somebody who dies is going to be cursed. Um, but like Ezekiel 40 through 48, this is operating on two levels. Isaiah is, is offering his people this promise of national restoration and redemption. So if we read it from their perspective... Oh my gosh, it's beautiful. They'll be restored to their land. They'll be able, be able to inhabit Jerusalem. They're going to be able to rebuild their temple. They're no longer going to be oppressed. They're going to live long lives. But there are clues that Isaiah is also speaking about an even greater future and offering mm. eschatological hope. As he's talking about the lion and the lamb and his holy mountain, which is a um, uh, occurs often in eschatological uh, literature and passages. Um, and if we remember that Isaiah is speaking to actual people, um, the people of, of Judah and Israel who've turned away from God, well, Israel had probably fallen by the point this, this passage was written, but um, he's warning of Judah's impending judgment, but he's also prophesying of a time when they'll return and be restored. But uh, at the same time, he's, he's promising all of us that, Death is going to be defeated. He, he, he's, he's not implying that there will be death. He's saying there won't be. He's saying the power of death is broken. He says, if someone didn't live 100 years, they would be considered cursed. It doesn't mean we should expect that to happen, rather the opposite. But because he was giving this vision to specific people in a specific time, he's promising them long life. Um, it's, it's a bit of hyperbole. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's saying that there will be death, uh, in the new heavens and earth. Ooh, sorry You're about that. You're still good. Let me close that. <laughs> You're fine. I thought I had it closed. <laughs> um, okay. Sorry about that. So yeah, the power of death will be broken. I think that is what that's teaching. And this passage is operating on those two levels. And, and, and we say that often in prophetic literature. Hmm. Really interesting. So, so this is referring to the new heavens and the new earth, the same reference that John uses in Revelation. You're saying that John is using this passage to describe it in different terms, right? I wouldn't even say different. I would say more, more full, right? Okay. So, almost like a, a another. He's taking it to the next level. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> to, to use kind right. of common language. <laughs> right. So, well, in some, in some hand, like there's, there's certainly some parallels there. And in that case, it seems like you could argue like, hey, if John's inspired and depending on your way of inspiration, if he is, unless you're saying that John, unless someone would say that John misinterpreted Isaiah 65, then it seems like you'd have to say that whatever is being talked to talked about in Revelation 20 and 21 is the same thing that is in Isaiah 65, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, and again, you get you get into the hermeneutics of it because there there is a whole camp of biblical scholars who would say New Testament authors take Old Testament passages and give them a totally new meaning. Yeah. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that at all. I think John is showing up showing us a more filled out, more fleshed out mm. um, version of what he's... Because God God was promising them redemption and restoration. Mm. 
but they probably understood it a little differently um, than what God actually intended. Mm. Because when God, when God is promising, um, you know, national restoration, I mean, they, they were restored, but then, you know, but then they fell again and, you know, they would rise and fall and rise and fall. And even to this day, right. And so they never have they experienced this full redemption that God has promised that is still ahead. And so God still has that promise ready and waiting on his people. It's just even bigger than, than what they expected. Hmm. Yeah, really interesting. Okay. And uh, also I wanted to mention that uh, you have the mountain reference, but you also have the mountain reference in the Ezekiel of 30 to 40. And I mean, honestly, in my opinion, like the Ezekiel passage is like so clearly metaphorical. We talked about that in the previous video. I mean, it just seems like completely obvious that if that's referring to some type of metaphorical mountain, I think this might be too. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. Well, and, and um, part of what I did in my dissertation, I read so much Second Temple period, not just Second Temple period, but... Mm, Jewish literature, uh, yeah. Greek literature for, you know, a range of several five, six, seven, eight hundred years range around mm-hmm. the time of Jesus to see, you know, how does John's writing compare to non-biblical, to, you know, I mean, you, you can tell a lot about us by our pop culture, by the literature yeah. of our day. And so um, the mountain of God, th- there's certain, I hate to call it tropes, but that's, that's seems like a little bit of a derogatory term to, to, to use for imagery in the Bible. But there, there's some sort of standard imagery in, in these apocalyptic sure. scenes, and the the you know the mountain of God, the you know is is all over. It's it's in just about every eighty uh, percent of the apocalyptic literature where you're going to see this mountain of God because it's where God lives, right? God lives way right. up there. Sometimes he's in the clouds. Sometimes he's on a mountain. And, right. <laughs> and the mountain, you know, he always comes down, right? Either we go up to the mountain or he comes down. And in, in the Bible, you know, he is coming down. All right. But also the mountain is super high. So maybe, you know, the, 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 that mountain reaches up to the heavens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you get that little thing oh, going on there. For sure. Yeah. The Greek gods, they lived on Olympus, Olympus right? Which right. Um, I, I, I was such a high mountain. I think people... I don't know. Did, did anybody in the Greek mythology ever actually climb all the way to the top? I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am not a Greek expert. I cannot answer that one, sadly. Um, so, yeah. Uh, what about uh, John 14? Okay. What do you, what do you think so, about that one? A little bit of a different direction, but the, the outcome is the same. So, okay. John 14 is a passage frequently referenced to support the idea of Jesus coming to get us and taking us up to heaven Mm. um, when we die. And John 14, 2 says, In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And that's from the King James. And, and uh, I wanted to use the King James because we have, we see mansions in yeah. King James, right? So, um, but let me take it step by step so that, so that it makes sense. But we'll, we'll loop back to the mansions in just a second. So Jesus said, he says, in my father's house or in my father's, uh, in my father's house, there are many rooms or many mansions. And I, before we get to mansions, I want to point out that the Father's house is a clear reference to the Jerusalem temple. So in a plethora of other Jewish works of literature, even early in the book of John itself, um, John 2.16 to be exact, the temple is called the Father's house. But what does the temple represent? What's the whole point of the temple? It's, it's to get people into the presence of God. It's a place where God's people can encounter his presence. Hmm. And through Christ, you and I have direct access to the Father, right? You and I, don't, we don't have to go to the temple to access the presence of God. We, we have the Holy Spirit within us, which, which we, won't, uh, we won't have time to talk about today, but, but I do think the Holy Spirit is a key part of this argument. Um, through Christ, we have direct access to the Father. Um, so the, the essential aspect here is the presence of God, not about a building, not about a place. So hang on to that. 
the second part, the second important part is that, well, the second of, of many important parts is that the mini rooms or the mansion, uh, they're not rooms, they're not a mansion, right? The, the problem is this term Monet. It's a very uncommon term. And as a result, it was grossly mistranslated. So it was originally mistranslated into the Latin scriptures as mansiones, which then the King James translated from the Latin and just took it straight there as mansions. Mm. Um, but the original mansiones, and uh, I'm probably saying that horribly wrong. I'm not a scholar of Latin, um, but it intended to convey stations or resting places along the soul's journey to heaven. Maybe even a little, maybe even a little bit of Gnosticism in there, oh. a little Platonism, perhaps. I don't know. Um, but then it, it just sort of got brought literally over when the original term doesn't it's not about a room it's not about a mansion um the the root of the term simply means abiding place and john the book of john is full of verses about abiding in christ abiding in the presence of god um even in this chapter john 14 23 jesus says all who love me will do what i say my father will love them and we will come and make our our monet our home our dwelling our abode with each of them Right, so the Father's house is in a mansion in heaven. It's his presence, and the many rooms aren't rooms. They denote our access to his presence. So instead of this, in my Father's house, there are many rooms, I suggest we should understand this passage as saying, in the presence of my Father, there is more than enough. There's ample space to abide. Hmm. So that's the first little chunk. Um, are we good to keep going? Yeah, Do you have one. any? Okay. Uh, I don't, I don't want to get, get too far. If you have any questions, just, just stop me. Uh, so Jesus said he's going to prepare a place. If he's not going to prepare our mansion, what is he preparing? Uh, so again, this language of a prepared place, it's, it's, a very, uh, it's a very Old Testament concept, kind of like the Father's house. Uh, it resonates with theological significance. It, it sounds like um, I was surprised when I really dug into this term because it kind of sounds generic, but it's not a generic um, phrase at all. It, it resonates with deep theological significance. It's used to describe the temple, the very presence of God himself, um, and the promised land. And, and it's really the culmination of God's promises to his people, right? You think about mm -hmm. the Old, Old Testament, people of God, they're, they're always going for the promised land, right? So um, when Jesus is preparing a, quote, place, he refers to his crucifixion, the crucifixion and resurrection of his own body. His pre process of preparation isn't preparing a house or a room. He's preparing our way into the presence of the Father through his death and resurrection. Okay, so I'll, let me keep going and, and um, support that some more. So he says, if I should go and prepare a place, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am, also you will be. So he says he's going to prepare a place. Where's he going? We think like, we think, well, of course he's going to heaven, but we think that because that's the way we've always, it's just sort of ingrained in our mind. We've never really slowed yeah. down to think, well, maybe that's not where he's going. Well, where is he going? He's going to the cross, right? Hmm. He's, he's, he's speaking to his disciples just before his crucifixion. They're under extreme emotional duress and he's, he's giving them Comfort. He's telling them what's going to happen, and uh, he's telling them he's going to the cross. But I think there's even more meaning than simply going to the cross. Hmm. So the Greek term, again, this um, if if we slow down and really look at the text, especially the Greek, it it just becomes so to me at least it becomes so clear. So the Greek verb used to describe the going is poreuomai. There's a lot of verbs in there. Uh, it's the same term used for walking. And the verb for walking also has a well, well-attested moral sense, as in walking with the Lord. We still have that idiom in our language mm, today. Yeah. Um, and the expression originates all the way back in the Old Testament at, from the Hebrew equivalent of the term for walking, which is halak. And halak was such a common term for obedience that the Jewish law is called halakha. They still call it that today, halakha. And this type of usage, uh, we see it 
uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, just a couple examples, one from each. Psalm 86, 11, teach me, O God, your ways, and I will walk in your truth. Um, Luke 1, 6, Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous in the presence of God, walking blamelessly, blamelessly in all the commands of the Lord. So in light of this common, common phrase, I believe that Jesus' words should be understood in this well-attested sense. For I walk in obedience and I go to the cross to enable you to abide in the presence of God. So his going, he's not going to prepare us a house. He's making a way into the presence of the Father through his perfect model of obedience. Okay, so you and I, we're still, we have it in it, right? Jesus has, has gone, he's walked, he's prepared the way, but we're not quite there yet. We haven't fully entered in. So Jesus is saying, I'll return, I'm coming back. Um, but but we sort of, because we're ingrained with this uh, certain interpretation, we think, oh, he's, he's going to come back and get us and take us to heaven. But mm -hmm. if we read closely, Jesus doesn't take promise to take us anywhere at all other than to himself. Now, some some uh, translations insert, I'm going to, or I will take you to the place where I am. Place is not there. He <laughs> never says he's taken us to a place. It's not in the Greek. Some English verse, uh, versions include it, but it is not in the Greek. Um, it drives me nuts when I see that. Um, and, and then as you continue to read through the passage, the following verses support that. Listen, he says, you know the way where I go. You know, he doesn't say, you know, the place I'm going to. He says, you know, the way he never says they know where the place where he's going to. They know the way they don't know the where. And the way is Jesus. He says, I am the way. This is verse six. I am the way, <laughs> the truth and the life. No one can come to the father except through me. Mm. So when I, when I read it, it in light of the, the Jewish context, the Old Testament context, it just seems so clear to me. Jesus is going to the cross to prepare a way for us to have a relationship with our Father. He's making it possible for us to abide in God's presence. He's not preparing a room in heaven or a mansion in heaven for some point in the future. He's paving the way to God's heart right now. He's prepared the way by walking in obedience and dying on the cross. And he's even provided the perfect model of obedience for us to live in right now. So it's not about like when we die. Uh, it's about Jesus making us making a way right now for us to live in God's presence. And as we are increasingly transformed by him, we become agents of change and agents of redemption in our world. Um, but when we sort of just think about escaping creation and escaping hell and getting out of here and going to heaven, it's, it's sort of, uh, we sort of miss the life-changing and world-changing power of the gospel hmm. message. Really, so there you go. Really interesting. Yeah. Okay, so question for you. So yeah. seems like a little bit, at least of your argument, relies on that Monet word. So the... Oh, yeah. Okay. So any, the NET translation uh, translates it as, because I am going away to make ready a place for you, that, that place you, that word you hate. So um, the, he sa it says, one of the questions that must be answered here is whether or not topos is to be equated with Monet. In Revelation 12, 8, topos is used to refer to a place in heaven which would suggest that the two are essentially equal here. So do you mm -hmm. agree with that, that they should be equal? And do you think that Revelation 12, 8 is referring to an actual place in heaven? Or what do you think about that? I'm trying to, I wrote about Topos. I'm trying to remember exactly what. <clears throat> okay, here we go. The place, the Topos, also carries cultic associations, um, just like the um, the temple being the Father's house, right? The tapas, like the prepared place as well, refers to the promised land, the temple, the presence of God. Um, the place where Yahweh has chosen to establish his name is found um, at least 21 times in the Old Testament. In John itself, it's used 17 times. Um, but John also uses this term as a reference, again, to the Jerusalem 
temple. And, and, and so we have it in the Septuagint, in the Old Testament and the New Testament um, precedent for interpreting tapas in accordance with the idea of um, this eschatological place that Jesus is preparing. So I do think there is a place Jesus is preparing for us in the presence of the Father. And I think it can um, point toward the new heavens and earth. But I think the stress, the, the, the overwhelming emphasis uh, in the passage is, um, is on preparing a way into the presence of the Father. Mm, okay. All right. That makes sense. Okay. And uh, specifically, Revelation 12, did, um, I mean, so you interpret that the same way? That's referring to the, yeah, I'll let you read from it. Yeah. What verse is it? Uh, uh, Revelation 12, 8. Tapas. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, if we're, if we're looking at, at the at heaven as, as the, the key aspect of heaven being being in the presence of God, mm -hmm. so I, I think it's more more about they lost their access to let's say Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, the dragon, he was yeah. So the the dragon and his angels have lost their access to the presence of God because they rebelled against him. Ah. That's interesting. Yeah, no, that fits perfectly. Uh, okay, so let's see here. Uh, let's go into Second Corinthians 5. Okay. So, yeah, I don't, I don't have nearly as much to say about, about this one, and I, I'm <laughs> yeah. not a scholar of uh, Corinthians specifically, um, yeah. or Isaiah for that matter, but, but so... Uh, as I've looked into and, and sought out verses about heaven and scripture, 2 Corinthians 5 is, is just about the closest passage I can found that sounds like it could be talking about like going to an otherworldly heaven. Okay. Uh, and, and I'll read just a little bit of it. Um, verse 5, starting in verse 5. We know, this is Paul talking. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So again, it's important to look at the context. And if we recall, you know, Paul's letter wasn't originally divided up into chapters. So if, if we read the, the passage, the, the lines and verses that come before, we learn that Paul is contrasting our bodies, our temporary perishable bodies. He's not, he's not comparing like our, our home on earth versus our home in heaven. He's comparing our temporary perishable bodies, which can be destroyed by persecution and trials. Um, he's contrasting that with our eternal security in Christ. And it's very similar to the way that John in Revelation talks about the martyrs who are slain for their faith, right? They, they, their physical bodies are destroyed, but they are protected because of their faithfulness to God. So, so it's really an issue of perishable body, perishable body versus eternal security, not an issue of, of wanting to get away from earth and go to heaven. Hmm. But I mean, I mean, it says we have a building from God, a house not built by human hands. I mean, that sounds like it's mm -hmm. literally referring to a, a body or a, you know, otherworldly body. So mm -hmm. uh, maybe specifically you could say, um exactly what you mean by so if it's referring to a physical body what is the other body is that a spiritual body like in heaven or on the new earth or what yeah i would say it's our redeemed body so so he's the tent we live in is destroyed he's using metaphorical language and he's kind of using language of um you know the old testament um you know them dwell when they would tabernacle yeah. uh in their tents um and so he's sort of using that imagery but he's using it for because then Look at verse three. He says, "Because when we're clothed, we will not be found naked, right?" So, so he's not talking about living in houses or buildings. He's he's using this tent imagery, this building mm -hmm. imagery as a a metaphor. So, our earthly tent, our earthly body will be destroyed, but our 
our eternal house, our building from God, which isn't built by him. We, we, mama and daddy uh, did not come together to make our eternal house in heaven, right? Our new body is going to be built by God. Um, and we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because these bodies are imperfect. These bodies have bad knees and a bad back and, and get sick and diseased. Um, because when, and, and we feel shame in these bodies, right? So verse three, when we're clothed, we'll not be found naked, which is a symbol of shame and, and vulnerability. And, and while we're in this tent, we're grown or burdened, um, because we don't want to be, we don't want to be unclothed like we are now. We don't want to be naked. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be in pain. We we're longing to be clothed with that, uh, eternal or heavenly dwelling. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that makes more sense than, uh, looking at it as you know earth versus heaven hmm. so, okay so extra question then and hmm. uh, what do people that have like you know missing arms and stuff like that uh, does this change how we see that picture oh no like i think it, people in heaven restored body or whatever yeah I, I think it accords perfectly with that right because we have this earthly tent that that is damageable it's vulnerable we can have missing arms we can you know like i said we have cancer all these things and we're longing for that invulnerable dwelling that god is going to give us the body that is um renewed and restored and um impermeable to sickness and disease and death yeah i think that accords perfectly with that and again as i said if if you kind of go back but prior to this passage um it supports this interpretation because Paul is talking about um, our our bodies. He's not talking about going to heaven or going anywhere. He's talking about our bodies. Hmm. Okay. And finally, uh, so the this new body is referring to the new body in heaven or the new heavens and new earth. Uh, I would say new heavens and earth. I, I don't really think. I don't think that's super relevant in Paul's mind to the argument he's making. Okay. Um, if you want to say, I don't know, that's okay too. No, no, no. Uh, actually, I, I think I said I started in verse five earlier, but I actually started in verse one. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So if, if we jump back to the chapter before the, the lines literally right before that, he says, um, don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, right? Our bodies are wasting away and dying. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Uh, inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. So our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what we see is temporary, our bodies are temporary, what is unseen is eternal. And so, so he probably does have, you know, the big picture in mind as well. Um, he probably is talking about the new heavens and the new earth because he's talking about uh, each, you know, eternal. Hmm. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, he, he could he could be talking about um, the body and and the eternal state in general, but he's definitely talking about the body because he keeps bringing up this perishable, this earthly tent that's mm -hmm. wasting that's that we're groaning about. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. So uh, Job nineteen then. Okay. All right. So the part of the problem, Job 19, 25 through 29, these lines in Hebrew are very difficult. Some scholars think uh, they're so difficult. Some scholars think that they're actually corrupted, right? That they're, <laughs> that we don't even have good text for it in the first place. Um, so, so jumping off from there, we're, all, we're already kind of on rocky ground. Um, but Job 19 is, is fairly unique in the Old Testament, maybe not unique, but, but certainly not common because it, it seems to speak fairly straightforwardly about the resurrection. Um, mm -hmm. Now, there are a few other passages, uh, Ezekiel 37, where we have the dry bones coming to life, but, but passages like that um, are speaking about the national restoration and resurrection of Israel, just like we talked about, those kind of two, two levels, the restoration of Israel, but there's also that deeper meaning, right? Um, and so I think there are those two levels going on in Ezekiel 37 um, and, and typical prophetic passages like that. But, but that's not happening in Job, right? There, there's not two levels. He's not talking about the restoration of Israel in any shape or form. Um, he seems to be speaking fairly plainly about bodily resurrection. 
Now, why would why would it be unusual for for Job to talk about resurrection in the afterlife? Right? Mm -hmm. We 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 feel like that the Bible is clear on that. But but as as I've said kind of throughout. Um, the Bible really doesn't talk that much about heaven and the afterlife. And especially in the Old Testament, heaven and the afterlife and resurrection um, were sort of nascent uh, concepts. They're, they're there, but they're not fully formed. There's no full, full like presentation, like, you know, kind of Paul gives us these theological treatises. There's nothing yeah. like that, you know, about heaven and the afterlife and resurrection in the Old Testament. Um, now, we, we, one afterlife potentially afterlife term we have in the Old Testament is Sheol. Most people have, have heard of Sheol. It's a common term associated with the afterlife in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, but it's important to note that the, the biblical authors, again, they don't teach about Sheol. They just mention it sometimes, right? It's a right. shared cultural reference for the ancient Jewish people. And it's mentioned from time to time in the Bible, but, but they really don't present it as an integral part of our theology. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's more of a way to express like deep emotion. You know, when David says, my, my bones went down to Sheol or don't let me go down to Sheol. Um, it's a dark, dusty place under the earth. It's a place where God isn't there. His hand can reach there, but God's presence isn't there. Um, it's a place where no thinking or worshiping happens. Um, both the wicked and the righteous go there. So it clearly isn't hell. Um, and so really probably grave is the best translation of, of Sheol, right? And then um, heaven, we already talked about, is typically just the sky. So verses that, that mention the afterlife um, don't even typically use the word heaven, right? So in Job, when he's talking about, I'll, I'll read this passage to give everybody some more com context. Job uh, 19, 25 through 27a, he says, Yet as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God whom I on my part shall behold for myself and whom my eyes will see and not another. Now, to me, it's a pretty straightforward uh, presentation of the resurrection. Um, I will, you know, kind of devil's advocate, some interpret um, redeemer here in the sense of kinsman redeemer, like the uh, the book of Ruth, where Boaz is her kinsman redeemer, um, the Levitical law of the redeemer, that sort of thing. Some people in, interpret it in light of that, uh, a human rescuer. And along those lines, the um, the earth is associated with Sheol. So basically, he's being rescued from the grave, rescued from Sheol. And then it says, even after my skin is destroyed, well, his flesh was destroyed, right? He had boils and his oh. sores. Um, so, so there is a more um, mundane, um, non-resurrection way to interpret this. Um, but consensus does lean toward this being one of the most clear statements of, of resurrection in the Old Testament. But again, it, it, it really doesn't teach us anything about heaven. It's just showing us that they did have some conception of, of an afterlife and um, possibly a renewed body. Hmm. So, so Sheol is, I mean, so you don't think it, I mean, obviously, uh, John Walton's a big proponent of this, where he's like, all right, except for the Egyptians, all the other cultures believed in some similar thing of like Sheol, where kind of like the underworld, mm -hmm. and everyone goes there. So um, do you disagree with that view? I, I think it's not fully formed. I, I think it's there. I, I think... They, they may not even have all had the same conception of it, right? Because our, our Old <laughs> yeah. Testament is written across thousands of years. And so there may have been um, instances where a biblical author uses Sheol to refer to, you know, some sort of underworld. But if, mm -hmm. if you look specifically at the text where it's used, mm -hmm. um, generally it's, it's not a place like, like when I think of the underworld, I think of kind of like Greek uh, mythology and, and Egyptian mm -hmm. mythology, like things were happening down there. Like people are doing stuff and they're having drama and trying to get back up out of the underworld. And um, 
living their little underworld lives, but but we don't see this in scripture, right? It's, nothing really happened. There's no thought there. Um, it's a place of just nothingness. Hmm. And so, so I'm not saying in every single instance that that maybe there's no like typical conception of underworld there could be because it spans such a large range of time. But I really don't think it's important to the biblical authors, right? Right. Because again, they're much more concerned with how we live right now today. Right, right. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, So in relation to this question then, um, uh, you know, like, uh, what's the word? Uh, You didn't say redemption. How How do you use this, this, um, what is Job talking about here? Resurrection. Uh, yeah, resurrection. So resurrection. So his, just specifically, like, so his destroyed body going to a new body, and he's not specific about where that new body goes. Is that how you would put it? Yeah. I mean, we look at the verses. Uh, let's see. He does say, yeah, it's for me, I know Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Um, even after my skin is destroyed from my flesh, I will see God. So clearly they're, they're, they're on the earth that, you know, whether they stay there or not, you know, Job, Job's not really clear. Like he's back. We, I have my new body. This is where heaven is forever and ever. Um, he, he doesn't go that far. He basically mm-hmm. just says there's a redeemer. He's coming to earth and mm-hmm. I'm going to get a body that works again. I'm going to be able to mm-hmm. see <laughs> and behold my redeemer. Mm-hmm. Question for you. Um, and you know, you've kind of already hinted at this, but Jesus talks a whole talk. He talks a bunch about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand, all that. Uh, maybe you could just go into a little bit more detail about what he means by that. Yeah. So the kingdom of heaven, it's about a people, not Mm -hmm. a place. And so when we become part of the kingdom of heaven, Uh, we are called to be agents of the kingdom of heaven, right? We're not just part of the kingdom of heaven when we go to church on Sunday or uh, when we die and, you know, go to heaven or uh, go to the new heavens and earth. We are now, right now, part of the kingdom of heaven. And so God has called us to be agents of his purpose, his plan, his love on this earth. And, and again, as I've said, when we, when we think about heaven as just the place we go when we die, we yeah. miss the most important thing, you know, about it is that, that heaven is God's presence. And so we're bringing God's presence to the world where, um, as, as the, again, the Bible project describes this so well, they have a cute little video where, you know, we're like little, little glowing dots that are spreading, you know, God's presence and, and his light and love yeah. around the earth. And, and so that image is always stuck in my head. Um, but yeah, the kingdom of heaven, it's about a people much more so than it is about a place. And, and let me be clear that, that I'm not uh, expressing a theology of uh, it's just going to get better and better and better. And, and we're going to change the world and make it better and better and better and better, better until one day it's just a harmony, you know, a harmonious utopia on earth. I'm not saying that. I, I actually think Revelation teaches it's going to get much worse, much, much worse <laughs> before Jesus comes back and restores all of creation. Um, but I think God has called us to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Again, John 14, walk um, just as Christ walked in obedience. As part of his kingdom, we are called to walk in obedience, whatever that looks like, whether we have a, a really easy, great life or whether we have a really, really hard life and we suffer and we're persecuted. We are still part of the kingdom of heaven and we're still called to follow in his footsteps. And we may not, um, I'm, I'm, I'm probably not going to change the whole world all by myself. I'm not going to bring about utopia by myself, but but I can make a difference in the lives of people that God has placed in my path. Mm. Wow, that's really cool. So um, you, you, you mentioned that your possible book, writing book, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Did you talk about that yet? Um, the topic of that? Of the kingdom of heaven? Uh, I, I don't know. Whatever the, your book was supposed to be about, you never gave me details. <laughs> oh, oh, it's just it's, it stems out from John fourteen. Okay. Um, yeah, the the one I'm kind of working on and shooting some mm-hmm. proposals out. Yeah, it's it's straight out of that John fourteen article. I'm just kind of 
building it out um, and fleshing that argument out some more. But yeah, uh, I will definitely, um, that's because that's a big part of it, right? So there's there's the academic side where, where you dig in deep to the Greek and you dig yeah. into the, all the ancient Jewish sources. But then, um, you know, I, I've served as a pastor for many years. I've always kind of had one foot in the academy and one foot in the church. And so I, I feel like it's very important that, that our theology actually has an application uh, in our own lives and in, in the life of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Yeah. So people will be on the lookout for that. Uh, the link will be in the description whenever it comes out and also your previous books. Um, any last words on something you think is relevant for this discussion? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I do. You, you had kind of mentioned um, about rewards in heaven and I can just touch on that really, really quick. Um, I don't know that reward is even the best word, but, but, but I do think that the Bible teaches that um, our blessings in the new heavens and heavens and earth um, will be different from one another, right? Paul talks about winning eternal crowns and Jesus talks about um, building our treasures in heaven. Um, I don't think it's, it's not about like getting rewards in God. It's not like we're going to go to an assembly and like God mm-hmm. is going to hand out trophies. I don't, I don't think it's anything like that at all. Um, you know, maybe if we're expecting a big mansion, maybe we do view it like that. But again, I don't think that's the correct way to, to uh, view it. Um, if I understand that um, heaven is God's creation as it should have been in the beginning, like earth now, only the way God intended it to be right from the start, uh, then, then my view of rewards and treasures might look different. So I think our treasures in heaven are the fruit of our obedience and our labor here on earth. And that is people, right? The most important aspect of heaven is God's people in God's presence. And and so I think our rewards in heaven are the people who will be there as a result of our kingdom work. It's not so much God doling out rewards, but the blessing of seeing the, the fruits of our labor here on earth. And again, you know, the kingdom of heaven, it's about a people, not a place. Hmm. Awesome. All right. Very well said. All right. Thank you so much for coming on here. This has been really great talking to you for the third time. Um, yeah, everyone go check out her stuff. It's uh, really good stuff and more on the way. Um, thanks for talking to me again. And uh, until next time. Thank you so much. See you.